Hey, we're in part four of our series on Revelation, and today we're gonna talk about our third theme, which is the dragon. Okay, last week I told you that we're gonna be talking about the dragon and the beast, but since we're in Westlight Live mode, the sermon had to be cut in half. So I promise you guys, next week we will talk about the beast, but today we're gonna talk about the dragon. So today we're talking about the dragon. And I don't know if you know this, but the theme of dragon goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Yeah, the first book of the Bible. Oh, and before we begin, I need to say this, okay? I've been preparing for this message for a few weeks now, and I've been reading and researching a lot on this topic. And I have to say, I have learned a lot of new things. It's made me read some familiar old passages differently, especially some key passages in Genesis. So let's begin there. So in the beginning, God created the world. First, he brought in light, and then he gave us the sea, and he gave us some land, and gave us the sky. Then on day five, pay attention really closely to what God does here. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teems. Do you see the word right there, great creatures of the sea? Well, in Hebrew, that's the word taninim. And in case you're wondering, any word that ends with an I-M means it's plural. So the singular version of taninim is tanin. Now, I use the NIV translation of the Bible. And scholars who wrote the NIV looked at the word taninim and thought the closest word in English was great sea creature. Well, what do the other translators think about this? In the King James Version, they translated taninim as the great whale. The NRSV translators, well, they said that it should be translated as the great sea monster. And the Aramaic Bible uses the words great dragon. So which one is right, right? I mean, one common technique Bible translators use to translate words from a dead language is to find out how this word is used in other passages in the Bible. So here is the word taninim used in Psalm 74. It was you who split the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the taninim in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. So there's two things we can learn from this passage. First, the Taninim has more than one head, since it seems that God broke the heads, plural, of the Taninim. And the second thing we know is that the sea creature has a name, the Leviathan, or in our translation, Leviathan. So we know right away that it's not a whale. And if you're wondering, are there other verses in the Bible that uses the word Taninim? There is. In Isaiah 27, this is what it says, and it's very interesting. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding Nahash, Leviathan, the coiling Nahash, he will slay the Tanin. So what is Nahash? Well, Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. Okay, so let's review this again. The Tanin is also known as the Leviathan, which is also known as the serpent. Now, to make things even more interesting, about 2,000 years ago, when the Hebrew Bible was being translated into Greek, the word tanin, leviathan, and nahash, they were all translated into a single word, drakon, which is where we get the word dragon. So, going back to the Genesis story, in the Jewish and Greek mind, when they read Genesis chapter 1, they were noticing that God created a dragon, a sea dragon, on the fifth day of creation. Then in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve were walking through the Garden of Eden, 
a sea dragon came into the land from the sea and tempted them. So what was the serpent, aka the dragon, the tanin, what, what was it doing in the garden? It, it was creating disorder in God's world. So in response, God not being happy about this, what did he do to the serpent? He gave him a curse. And this is how the curse of the dragon goes. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So if you're wondering what this serpent looked like before the curse, well, according to Isaiah, it used to have wings. And so God clipped those wings and now this Nahash has to crawl on his belly for the rest of his existence. But the curse isn't over yet because I want you to pay attention to what God says next because a lot of future biblical authors will be referring to this next verse a lot. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Yeah, in other words, God promised that the offspring of the woman will one day defeat the offspring of the Nahash by crushing its head. Now, tuck that information in the back of your head because we're gonna be making a few reference to that. But what you need to know at this point in the sermon is that the dragon became a symbol of chaos in the Jewish literatures. And if God is a God of order, then the dragon is God's opposition. So when God was trying to create heaven here on earth, the dragon was the one that was trying to pull it back into chaos. So you could kind of imagine, right, that as the years went on, the Jews began referencing people who were creating chaos as people who were working with or for the dragon. Like for example, in Jeremiah 51, 34, the prophet refers to King Nebuchadnezzar as a tanin that had swallowed them up and vomited them out. In Ezekiel 29, God calls Pharaoh a tanin. He says that God will pluck him out of the Nile with all the fish that stuck to his scales and leave him in the desert so the wild animals can eat him up. But as Jewish authors often do, they started referring to the dragon by its attributes rather than its name. Like for example, you're probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is a giant and is described as having an armor coated with scales. You see, and that's a clear reference to the serpent, to the tanin. And over time, eventually, a number, a specific number gets associated with the dragon. In this story, Goliath is described as being six cubits tall and his spear weighs 600 shekels. So the number six becomes associated with people acting in concert with the dragon. Oh, and by the way, when David defeats Goliath in this story, notice the details. It says, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So why are there so many references to the head in this passage? It's basically the author's way of nudging the reader and pointing out that the Genesis 3 promise of the woman's offspring, in, case, in this case it's David, was crushing the serpent's offspring, which is Goliath, right in the head. In the story in 1 Kings chapter 10, King Solomon, who has made Israel into an evil empire, counts his gold every year. And every time he counts, he ends up with 666 talents. This is just the author's way of saying that Solomon, the king of God's people, is now acting in concert with the dragon. So I know this is a lot of information, but I hope you're catching on to how the Jews understood the dragon. The dragon is a corrupt spiritual power that inspires chaos in this world. And depending on the book of the Bible that you're reading, it is referred to it in its own creative way. For example, Paul the Apostle refers to him sometimes as the powers and principalities. Okay, 
Now with all this understanding, let's dive into Revelation chapter 12 and see what John reveals to us about the dragon. In Revelation 12, John is given a vision of a history of God's people, but with a lot of symbolisms. So we'll break it down. Here's verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So this woman represents God's people. In the Old Testament era, they were the people of Israel. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. This is a reference to the prophecy in Genesis 3, where the offspring of the woman will crush the offspring of the dragon. God's people, which is Israel, is going to give birth to that prophesied child, and the dragon is not happy about this. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with the iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So the nation of Israel is giving birth to a child who is to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is a clear reference to Psalm chapter 2, and this child is King Jesus. God's people, again, which is Israel, gave birth to Jesus who will destroy the dragon. So the dragon wanted to destroy him by nailing him to the cross, but Jesus resurrected and was taken away. Let's continue. The woman, that's God's people, but by this time in history, John's referring to the church, they fled into the wilderness to a place prepared to her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is the Jewish way of saying temporarily or like for a short time. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, if you read that very carefully, you'll also notice that John doesn't really tell us how God won that battle. And it just says that Michael was involved and then he was hurled down to earth, but it doesn't say how that happened. Then I heard a voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Again, the question is, how did he do it? Here it is. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. How did God, Michael, and Jesus and his army win against this, this dragon? Well, it says that Jesus didn't win this by battle. He won by sacrifice by his own blood. And the Lamb's army, that's the Christians, that's us, well, they participated in this by the same tactic as Jesus. It says that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They won by sacrifice. So let's keep reading. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Okay, so basically, the dragon, he knows that he can't fight Jesus because Jesus is way more powerful than he is, so he decides to go after God's people. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time, 
Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. This is the writer's way of saying, man, even God's creation is on God's side. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and holds fast their testimony about Jesus. And that's a reference to us, the church. Out of frustration and hatred for what Jesus was able to accomplish on the cross, the dragon, aka the Satan, is trying to take his anger out on the church. Okay, so now let's land this plane. What is John really saying here for us today? Well, first, he's telling the first century church that they are now participants in a drama that started way back in the book of Genesis. So let's just imagine that you are a Jew in the first century. You followed the Torah, but then eventually you came across Jesus, and now you became a Christian. So in your history, in your ancestry, you know that over years and years and years, your ancestors, the people of God, have been persecuted. I mean, looking back historically, the dragon was behind the slavery in Egypt. He was behind the invasion of the Assyrians, the invasion of the Babylonians, the oppression by, by the Greeks and now the Romans. And according to Jewish history, sometimes the dragon even got a hold of Israel and the church. And we know this because of 1 Kings chapter 10, where we see the number six being associated with King Solomon. If you have a history as a Jew in the Old Testament days, well, you were persecuted because the dragon wanted to do everything he could to make sure that the Son of God would not be born. And now, if you're part of the first century church, this is John's way of saying, hey, this is the dragon trying to get revenge on the fact that he doesn't belong in heaven anymore. So this is John trying to help them put their suffering into context. You are facing the dragon, and this isn't the first time in history that we've faced a dragon. We've seen this before, and guess what? This is not going to end. This won't be the last time. So John is asking them in the first century, but is also asking us today, whose team do you choose to be on? Do you want to be on Team Jesus, Team Lamb, or on Team Dragon? Because if you're on Team Lamb, you have to agree with this version of order. God is trying to create His will here on earth, and do you want to be a part of that? Or do you want to go against it? Do you not agree with God's version of heaven on earth? Team lamb or team dragon? So church, may you not give in to the influence of the dragon. And you could do that by loving, sacrificing, giving, and forgiving one another. And may you see that you are playing a crucial role in this cosmic drama that started on the first pages of the Bible. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless.